Here's our last sermon in the series, wrapping up the book of James, which is such a rapid fire, dense document, jumping from theme to theme, from paragraph to paragraph, that I'm going to struggle a little bit to wrap us up here, the last two chapters in 20 minutes. So I'm going to talk fast. And I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground in a way that makes sense. It means that I'm going to miss some stuff. There are a few passages that I'm not really going to go into. And, uh, you know, that's not ideal. The whole point of doing the book study was we were going to cover the entire book and really get into it. But uh, we'd be here an hour if I actually read everything I have written down right here. So we're going to have to pare it down a little bit. In the first two sections, in the first two sermons, we talked about how James sort of establishes in the broad strokes of what he's dealing with, what the community's dealing with in chapters one and two. He establishes both the context of the community he's addressing, that is, the twelve tribes among the Goyim, the Gentiles, the nations, which is all the same word, the, tri- the tribes of Israel in diaspora. And then he goes on to address their context, their overriding concerns, which appear to be both internal and external. They appear to have an enormous amount of fear grounded in the violence that's coming aimed at their community from the outside. This is a time when Jews are becoming ghettoized, when they are starting to live next to each other in neighborhoods because it's dangerous to live scattered throughout the big cities of the eastern Mediterranean. This is a time when they are under constant attack and when they are lashing out in response. So that leads us to the second big concern of James, the internal concern. Within the community, he sees hatred spawning, resentment spawning, self-protectiveness spawning. And he addresses that poison in the soul of the individual and of the community, the poison that, that contaminates their whole body. Chapters 2 and 3 go into more practical considerations. How our, our playbook for how we survive race war. How we weather ethnic conflict. Not only in order to, to live and go on surviving in a physical sense, but how we don't let it corrode our souls. How we do not become complicit, become part of it. This is the end of the book, of the letter. And in chapters four and five, James drives it home. James gets more concrete on the big picture where before he was sort of establishing more or less the things that he was talking about. Now he asks us at point blank, where do the wars and fights among you come from? Why is there so much violence? around you all the time. And not just violence surrounding you, but violence within you. Violence that is being generated not just from hostility from the outside, but from your own from your own internal community. Why indeed? I feel like I ask this question all the time. Why are people so racist, so violent, so prejudiced, so willing to hurt their neighbors. People who have grown up knowing, knowing folks who are different from them since they were in the cradle. 
will go on to persecute those very own those very same groups. It is a bafflement, a mystery that we can attempt to explain by talking about sociology, by talking about patterns of thinking, by talking about all kinds of things. We can talk about every different context. We can talk about how you have to look at the specific individuals. We can, we can go to great lengths to attempt to describe where the roots of violence are. And yet it always seems to boil down to much the same things. You desire, but do not have, so you kill. Is he talking about personal desires here? Is he talking about you know, my, my desire for a bigger house? My desire for better food? Partly. But then he goes on to this seeming non sequitur. This next paragraph is a complete and sudden shift calling us adulterers. What does that have to do with violence? What does that have to do with our desires leading us to kill? Well, as students of Hebrew Scripture, his audience well knew that there's a long history of understanding idolatry as adultery. Wrap those syllables around your tongue again. Idolatry as adultery. Hosea's whole life was a metaphor. The prophet Hosea married a prostitute and made his whole life into a play, into a drama, acting out God's relationship with Israel. An Israel who was beloved and cherished, despite constantly looking elsewhere at other gods. It's a very patriarchal metaphor, and Hosea is a pretty patriarchal way of playing out a drama play. But the point is that this connection between adultery and idolatry is as old as the Bible itself. It is also interesting to note that in the original Greek, James goes out of his way to call the men adulterers as well. The default term for adulterer was female. But in the Greek, James addresses you adulterers and adulteresses, you'll hear in some of the old English versions. He's making sure that he understands he's talking about everybody here, not just the women who have been pigeonholed into this horrifying role. He's talking about everybody here. And the context makes it clear that he is talking about adulter, about not adultery in the flesh as much as adultery of the spirit, idolatry. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. He's talking about idolatry. The desires that we have that, we, that lead us to kill is something that he relates directly to what we worship, what we hold up, how we have made friends with the world. These desires of our body are desires of our individual bodies, but also desires of the collective body. And they lead us into war. 
You desire to have and cannot obtain. What do we worship that we cannot attain? Fame, wealth, of course. Purity, an idea of identity that is simple and clean and rejects everybody who's not like us. These are the desires that we have and cannot obtain. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. We kill to get what we want, and our wants are always unmet. So we are always killing because we don't ask for what we really need and we don't pursue what we know to be right. Wars are not started by starving people. Starving people are far too busy trying to make it to the next day. Wars and revolutions throughout history are typically either the machinations of the upper class or the discontent of the middle class. People who have enough but want more. The most horrifying phrase to ever come out of a leader's mouth is preemptive strike. They're going to hit us, so we need to hit them first. We have enough right now, but we're worried that maybe someday it will be taken away from us, so we have to get ahead of the game and kill for something that we don't today need. This is the pattern, time and again, a pattern here exposed to full view by James. Just yesterday, yet another disaffected young man committed an act of horrible violence in, I believe, Galveston, Texas. This is becoming, or has been for centuries, a never-ending tide of violence spawned by disaffection. Disaffected young men in Mexico, Honduras, Syria, the Congo, Afghanistan, Copenhagen, Beijing, Los Angeles. Disaffected young men who do not necessarily come from destitute backgrounds. These are not people who are facing literal starvation in their lives, but who become pawns recruited and directed by selfish old men. People who are trying to make sure that they will always get more than their fair share, get more than what they've got. This is a bit of an aside, but why is it always men? On this incredibly diverse planet, with our incredibly diverse circumstances and our incredibly diverse cultures, at what point do we recognize that there's a deep problem there if it's always the men doing the killing? It's like the, the person who says, that you, you know, you meet, you've got that one friend who says that all the people they meet are jerks, right? Everybody they, run, they meet is a jerk. Well, at some point, it isn't them, it's you. I feel like maybe there was a major curse missing from the end of Genesis 2. 
that maybe alongside toiling in the soil, something has should have said about how men seem cursed to shed each other's blood. James makes a much more nuanced and better point, though. Rather than casting uh, a shadow over half of the human population like I just did, instead of simply blaming men, James recognizes that these disaffected men, these, these, these promoters of violence, have their reasons. They are not crazy. They are not insane. They're not somehow off the human chart, something that you can discount and say is inhuman. He says, no, they all have real desires. He doesn't fall back on the canard of mental health. He says that it is our desires that drive us to war, to kill. Desires and needs that we all, to some degree, women and men, desires that we all feel. These, ca- these passions are no cause for celebration. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, says James, your joy to, de- de- to dejection. People get so ginned up about getting theirs, so ginned up, so eager for the fight, that they burst out in celebration. What is a rally but a great celebration? And when those rallies are passed, when the warfare is engaged, then James addresses those who stand in the background, profiting off of the conflict. Today or tomorrow, we will go into this city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit and then leave. Those who enter a place where there is opportunity created by chaos and make bank are celebrating. They are laughing. They are filled with joy. And it is they who James addresses in this next segment. Come now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. James chapter 5, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. James goes after the rich in this context of conflict, with searing language, likes of which you hear almost nowhere else in the Bible. You have stored up treasures for the last days. Indeed, the wages that you kept back by fraud from the laborers who harvested your fields are crying. And the cries of those who harvested have entered into the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wayward. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the righteous man who does not resist you. James sounds like an awfully harsh book if you take it to be about everyday people leading everyday lives. But when you understand that the book of James is about people who are waging war on one another, neighbors who are killing neighbors, and the after effects 
the surrounding aura of culture that surrounds a war, then his incredibly spicy language lines up much more with what we know to be true to life. This passage about the rich who have nourished their hearts as in a day of slaughter makes a lot more sense out of that little aside back in chapter 1 where James was saying that just as the poor should be happy that they've entered the church where people help each other out and so the poor have been elevated and gotten richer, so also, he said in chapter 1, the rich should be happy that they have entered the church where we share things and they have gotten poorer. They should actually be happy that they've lost money and status by becoming Christians because now they don't have a target painted on their backs. The wealthy are the first against the wall when the revolution comes. That's how these conflicts break down. And this passage speaks to the mourning of the rich for how they will be targeted when, well, when, when bad things happen. Evil events, the, the horrifying breakdown of society that we should clamp down and do everything we can to prevent. No, James is much scarier than that. No, James sees this as a day of reckoning, a day of God's justice coming. That the, in the chaos, James sees seeds of God's kingdom. Look closer at this picture. These looters who are taking apart our carefully constructed world are stealing water off of the back of a tanker owned by an international business group. Which side of this picture do you think God is on? We thought the Gospel of Luke was communist. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Well, that's downright tame compared to the anger here expressed by James. This anger, this out-and-out condemnation that your gold and silver will be a testimony against you and will sear your flesh like fire, If this is the James, if this book is from the brother of Jesus, the younger brother of Jesus, this kind of language reveals a lot about the fuel that fired Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist before him. The revolutionaries that surrounded him start to look like they were, in fact, revolutionaries. The movement he inherited, Jesus inherited from John the Baptist, was a movement for social and economic change, as well as religious revival. So James addresses the rich in the most scathing terms. In fact, in such scathing terms that you start to wonder if he's actually talking to the wealthy as though there are these wealthy people in the communities where this is going to be written or if his message is actually meant for the ears of the poor. To the rich, he's saying, you, you, you. But then in the very next paragraph, he says to the poor, therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
After all this vitriol, this fire, he says that the, the bodies of the rich will be seared by their gold and their silver. He says, therefore, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Once again, a document that seems schizophrenic, seems completely broken up, to swing from top one topic to another, makes complete sense when you think about what is actually going on. James is addressing people who are enraged. James is addressing people who are willing to go out and kill people to take their wealth. James is addressing an angry population, fearful and on edge. And so James is signaling that his anger at the status quo equals that of any other revolutionary. He's just as upset as anyone. But he establishes those bona fides in order then to turn and preach peace. The bodies of the rich will be seared, therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Notice how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient until he receives the early and late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is drawing near. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, lest you be condemned. Look, the judge is standing at the door. My brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them happy who endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and seen the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is very gracious and merciful. Hard times are coming. The revolution is coming. Death and warfare and destruction are coming, says James. And in that, he sees both great horror and the seeds of potential. And so, he says to an angry people, be patient. Do not do the evil. Let evil come to the evildoers. It is a natural process that will happen. Your task is to endure, to persevere, to be patient, and to keep your hands clean from your neighbor's blood. Endurance is the best revolutionary tactic. Survive. How many revolutionaries would agree? How many communists in 1910 in Russia would have heard this and said, yes, yes, we just have to keep our heads down and weather this. The Tsar is going to fall by himself. James' arguments never really seem to hit home. He preaches what I believe to be the gospel, but he never seems to be fully sure of fully converting the communities he addresses. He's always appealing to them but his arguments seem scattershot. And I'm not sure how much James really hoped that his words would be heeded. Otherwise, he would not be quite so certain that indeed violence and catastrophe were right around the corner. He's no Jesus, able to flip people upside down, and he knows it. He's just trying his best so that no more kids get killed. 
I resonate a lot with James, who points to someone greater than himself and doesn't pretend to be more than he is, who addresses perhaps haphazardly the situation right in front of him in an attempt to cobble something together, to salvage something from a community that seems determined to swear allegiance to one faction or another, one side of the street or the other, and to shed each other's blood. What's the key? What's going to unlock safety, mutual respect, decency, the spirit of the coming spirit of God's kingdom? James once again falls victim to his wandering specificity. The key? Don't swear oaths. But above all things, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you do not fall into condemnation. Got nothing to do with race warfare, class warfare, this whole conflagration that we've set up, right? Except it turns out it does has everything to do with it. People at the time used specific oaths as a license to lie. You were in court. You would say, by the temple, I saw him punch her in the face. But you get out of it later by saying, really strong, the only oaths that are binding to me and my community of people who talk about this stuff is to swear by the gold of the temple, by the, by the, by the inner sanctum, by the heart of the issue. Any oath, anytime somebody says, by my boots, if they're actually being serious, which when they say by my boots, they're usually not. But if they're actually being serious, any oath, like I swear on a stack of Bibles, is given as evidence that someone is not lying, which is only necessary when the person is practically, un- normally, typically, in everyday life, untrustworthy. Now, you can see how this is poison in a, in a community. You can see how this could be part of James's concern with people not being willing to treat one another with respect and due diligence. But it gets worse than that. This was used in business transactions. If someone wanted to get out of a contract, which were almost invariably verbal contracts, they would say, well, that oath wasn't really binding on me. We have documented evidence of disputes Court disputes, people arguing against each other about whether or not an oath was binding and valid. Imagine a world in which certain powerful business interests, be they individuals or organizations, could act with total impunity when it came to exploiting people by always finding a way to change the rules of the game in their favor. Now, I imagine, I know this is hard for us to imagine, but imagine that you couldn't actually trust a contract you signed because you, the dependent party, would live or die on the words of that contract 
But the powerful patron, if it ever became inconvenient for them, could just sweep you under the rug at a moment's notice. I know this sounds nothing like the 21st century. But above all things, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Does this forbid military service, public service? It might have. We're really not sure. The swearing of oaths was certainly typically a part of that. But whether that's specifically what James has in mind when he's talking about this is unclear because the Jews who he is addressing would not have been allowed into the Roman legions, much less be conscripted into them. So it's entirely possible that that's tangential at this point. However, it is certain that James is thinking hard about the economics and the politics of conflict, about the individual behaviors and beliefs that lead to collective violence. And for his day and age, he saw the taking of oaths and the way it allowed deception and exploitation to be pivotally important. That one doesn't translate particularly well into our context unless we swallow a really hard pill and say that we're not allowed to sign contracts. That one would require a lot more discernment, a lot more thought. But what James is demanding of his people is that level of separation from systems that he sees as collapsing, as crashing and burning, And his job is to get his people out of the house. The personal side of these conflicts in the war, the responsibility we have as individuals when we see things happen like Charlottesville or Galveston, Texas, The things that get under our skin and make us somehow complicit in these horrible acts, the things that everyone can see are evil, this is where James ends his letter. He sees that at the root of it all is a sense of self that is crushed and weakened And distorted. That behind each of these acts of violence, there is a person who doesn't dare be truthful unless pressed, unless forced into it. A person who doesn't dare to ask for what she or he needs. A person who doesn't dare to be, to worship the one who exists. What we'd recognize as a lack of self-esteem these days, James approaches from a somewhat different angle. Talking about our worth before God that we do not have because we do not ask. We do not come to God with confidence that we are worthy. We found that this term self-esteem is very useful and very constructive but also something of a weak crutch when you lean on nothing else. 
And in some places, it feels like in some communities, we've leaned on nothing else but self-esteem for the last 30 years, and it hasn't delivered what we need. It does some things right. It elevates, when we preach self-esteem to our children, it elevates their sense of agency and importance. And that is all to the good. But it does other things wrong. To speak only about self-esteem does not bring with it a broader view that recognizes that all people are just as precious and important. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. Is anyone merry? Let them sing psalms. Is anyone sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. And if they have committed any sins, they will be forgiven. Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. Ask for what you need. Do not swear oaths, but don't be silent. Don't be clammed up. Dare to speak what you are going to, what you are going through. Dare to express the hollowness and the emptiness that you feel inside. Open yourself to God and God will open to you. And finally, at the end of chapter 5, James says this. Brothers, if any one of you strays from the truth and someone corrects him, let him know that he who converts the sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the last word. As we look in our conflicted world, a world full of people primed to do violence to one another, primed by their abuses of the past, by their hopes for the future, primed by perfectly natural desires to belong to a group. You're going to know, brothers, family, who start getting seduced by the factions of this world and begin to talk hate and begin to do violence. If you can steer that person away, you will save them from death and it will cover a lot of mistakes. It's a prize worth shooting for like no other. White supremacy in this country is not somebody else's problem. My brothers and sisters, it is our problem. And we have brothers We have people in our communities. We have people who know us who will be drawn towards this violence. And if we can save just one of them, it will cover a multitude of other things that we do wrong. James's obsession with such seemingly petty and inconsequential things, when you read through at first blush, when you put him beside the sweeping language of the Gospels or even the writings of Paul, makes him indeed, makes this indeed seem like an epistle of straw. 
But once you know what he's up against, once you know in your heart the fear of someone you love saying something hateful, of seeing those words, those ugly words come out of beautiful lips, you understand why James is so obsessed about the minutiae. And why he seems to understand so clearly that there's, it just takes one little flip of a switch to turn a decent, loving person like you or me into a killer. One li- to be convinced of one little fact, one little interpretation of history, and you're on the front lines willing to spill blood. We are indeed adulterers, as he accuses us of being. Idolaters. We have terrible desires for things that that corrode and destroy us. We don't hate because we have to. Because if we don't do that, if we don't hate, we'll die. We hate because we want to. Because it makes us feel powerful and superior and comfortable. Because it gives us something we can't get anywhere else. A sense of self-worth. A meaning, a purpose, our manifest destiny. All things that we lack because we do not ask God for them. We don't ask God rightly to provide us with divine purpose. A meaning bigger than myself or my country or my race could ever be. And a sense of self-worth rooted in Christ's love that can be never taken away. There is only one way out of the violence that plagues our world, recognizing that our worthlessness has infinite worth. That although we are missed but for a moment, our limited lives matter for eternity. Recognizing that in Christ, our stupidity can become wisdom. The wisdom of those who are confident, uplifted, and at peace in their hearts despite all the hateful messaging that surrounds us. God loves you. We don't have self-esteem because somehow I'm better than everyone. That's the, way, that's the wrong way to teach self-esteem. The right way to teach self-esteem is to say that we have it because we are filled with love. Love for others that allows us to love ourselves. Love for ourselves that teaches us how to love others. And a love for God because we were first beloved. So ask for what you need. Don't be content with the small stuff. Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? That's tiny biscuits. Ask for what you really need. Ask for health and for forgiveness. Ask for understanding and for peace. Ask for the kind of self-love that leads you to love others, the only path available to humanity for healing this sick world. The kind of self-love that leads us to love others, which we call the name of Jesus. 